0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Matisse and the Sea. My first guest is Simon Kelly, the curator of Matisse and the Sea at the St. Louis Art Museum. The show's up there through May 12th. Matisse and the Sea examines the significance of the sea across Matisse's oeuvre. It especially examines St. Louis's own 1907 1908 Bathers with a Turtle, long considered one of Matisse's most challenging, enigmatic paintings. The excellent exhibition catalog was published by the museum and Hermer. Amazon and Bookshop offer it for about $45. On the second segment, Mark Bauer at the Manil Collection. Please remember to give us a five star rating and a review wherever you download the program, and be sure to see the show page for the Instagram handles of this week's guests. Simon Kelly, after the break. Throughout her life, Faith Ringgold has made art that unapologetically expresses her experience as a Black woman, artist, activist, and mother, all while amplifying the struggle for social justice and equity. Witness her groundbreaking practice in Faith Ringgold, American People, closing Sunday, February 25th at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago. Plan your visit at mcachicago.org. On view at the Getty Center through July 7th, 2024, The fascinating new exhibition First Came a Friendship. Sidney B. Felsen and the Artists at Gemini GEL takes you on a journey through five decades of photographs documenting Los Angeles' evolving art scene. For the first time, the Felsen Archive explores the remarkable history of Gemini GEL, artist's workshop and publisher of limited edition prints and sculpture. See photographs of Roy Lichtenstein, Robert Rauschenberg, and more artists at work, and witness the close friendships Felsen fostered with them. The exhibition also features prints from the studio, alongside related sculpture and drawings. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Crowning the North, Silver Treasures from Bergen, Norway, showcasing remarkable works of art that encapsulate the timeless craft of Norwegian silversmiths and goldsmiths from the 16th to the early 20th century. For centuries, Bergen, one of the largest port cities in Scandinavia, was a thriving hub of global commerce, which spurred the development of a uniquely Norwegian approach to the art of Bergen silversmiths. Crowning the North features some 200 objects, from spoons, tankards, sugar bowls, and salt cellars, to elaborate ceremonial wedding crowns and fantastic vessels. Visit mfah.org crowningthenorth to learn more about this exhibition. And we're back. Simon Kelly, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you, Tyler. I'm very glad to be here.
0: This exhibition was instigated by one of the major paintings in your collection and one of the most important Matisse paintings, period. Bathers with a Turtle, which you have newly dated to 1907-08, might be the most enigmatic painting in Matisse's oeuvre. In 1998, the the St. Louis Art Museum devoted a whole issue of its journal to inviting major Matisse scholars to take a swing at figuring out what the painting's about. And lots of major scholars are there, but I'm not sure any of them really gulp, covered themselves with glory. So this is kind of, this painting's kind of the Bermuda Triangle of Matisse studies. Does this show include Kelly's thesis about what the painting is about, a kind of solving of the triangle?
1: I wouldn't pretend to have solved, <laughs> solved this painting although. the... <laughs> Various conundrums around it. I mean, I think this exhibition, I, I hope, is is exciting for you know a number of reasons, and, and some of those are just uh, the the kinds of works we have brought together with the bathers with the turtle. You know, for example, the Minneapolis Three Bathers painting, which hasn't been you know reunited with our work for for a long time, and I think that will actually be a you know really interesting comparison for people. You know, I think sort of my angle, and you know, it's not like it wasn't mentioned in the in the bulletin that you referenced in 98. You know, there were sort of occasional references to Matisse's interest in in sub-Saharan African sculpture in that, in that bulletin, but I've kind of foregrounded it much more in this exhibition. And we have loans of various sub-Saharan African sculptures that Matisse owned coming from the family. And I think those actually do illuminate the painting in a in a very interesting way and sort of conflating those with, you know, sort of the Western European aspects that he was also looking at. Obviously, Cezanne is key and we have the, the three bathers painting that belongs to the Petit Palais, which is, is also coming to the exhibition. So, and Giotto is a sort of sub theme as well.
0: Yeah. Did you get that I mean, ceiling out of Florence? <laughs> uh, well, that was probably more
1: difficult, but, um, but yeah, so I think, you know, just thinking about the sort of eclecticism, the sort of hybrid range of, Sources that Matisse is, is looking at as he's developing his work, I and mean, who is ever going to know for sure? Matisse wrote so little about the painting, you know, that it, it, it's he left, you know, a sort of high degree of an enigma around it. You know, some of those aspects I've I've talked about. Hopefully, what will, will lend uh, sort of freshness to our exhibition.
0: And as you note in the catalogue, he never did exhibit it in Paris for reasons that remain obscure before we go on here I I not that you know a show needs my approval or anything but I've read all the stuff about this painting I I was a college student at the University of Missouri and this painting was my weekend refuge often 90 minutes away from campus so I've read everything about this painting over the years and the breadcrumbs you line up in the catalog and in the show are far more convincing than the freudian psychosexual readings of say various scholars whose names I'm choosing to forget from 1998. The core of your argument here is that bathers with a turtle isn't only a global picture in ways that we'll talk about as we go along here. It's also an abstract picture. So it does not portray a specific bit of land and sea and sky, but an abstraction. Those three stripes stand in for all or any land, sea, and sky. Why is it important to think of this as a universal or global picture?
1: Universal and global are two to me are sort of two different mm-hmm. things. I mean for for me the, the, the globalism was in, and globalism is a I know is a charged term, but globalism was important to me to you know to to think about Matisse Beyond Europe, you know, think about his you know, his extensive collecting of, of a wide range of art. Recognizing, of course, that, that globalism needs to be seen very squarely within the kind of French colonial framework, so I, you know I tried to sort of push on that. But there are, you know, there are aspects of, of you know Matisse's globalism which don't touch actually on colonialism. So. I think that's why I kept the term, uh, you know, globalism, because it to me, it, it, and it also makes Matisse somehow seem more contemporary. You know, glo- that that sort of whole question of what globalism means is is something that also I was I was thinking about trying to make him very resonant today. Yeah, so I mean, globalism, as I said at the beginning, the you know, just thinking about the range of sources, obviously Western European, but the, the Sub-Saharan African, you know, sources are are key, I think, to to our painting, and then in terms of the the, the universal i mean that's i mean i what i can I, I guess what i can outline is just you know the progress of the painting and and the, and the shift from the the compositional work the compositional study as matisse calls it the painting which is now in minneapolis which does i mean it, that actually has a degree of abstraction to it as well but it but it's is more wedded to the place of of the specific location of Collioure than our painting. So, you know, I I do think there's a there's a progression uh, in his work from the specific to to the timeless, if you like. It's almost a, a place outside or a place less time outside of time, if you like, you know, our work. But I, as to why Matisse did that, I mean, I don't. It's, it's difficult to you know to know I mean, i've I've wondered about that i mean these kind of almost erasing the the references to to landscape and the specificity of landscape and you know i I didn't talk about in the catalog but i wondered if that could almost have a sort of colonial aspect because there were kind of connections to made to to collier and north africa at certain points i'm not sure we necessarily want to go there but that that's you know that there's yeah
0: no, I think that is that was an interesting part of the catalog where you talked about the relationship between Matisse's interest in the sea and really among his French painter peers, French and Spanish, you know, painter peers, Matisse was really better traveled than any of them. So the relationship between Matisse's interest in the sea and French imperialism and how he kind of, well, maybe not kind of, seems to have been aware of it.
1: He aware of, of French imperialism.
0: Yeah, I mean, of how of how France's empire gave him entree to go to places like northern Africa or Polynesia,
1: um, for sure. And you know, when in 1906 he sees a large, you know, colonial exhibition in Marseille, even before That's he right. goes to Algeria, so and he, he's he's very aware of that. He's you know visiting the ethnographic museum at the Trocadero, you know, which had opened in, in 1878, and so even before he you know he goes to the uh, Rue de Rennes and buys that you know that 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 little. Congo power figure, which is often, you know, reproduced in, in the literature as, as being his you know the first sub Saharan African sculpture that he he buys. I'm I'm sure that he's very aware of that vocabulary from particularly from visiting the you know the Trocadero. And then that all of course develops with his travel, as you say. You know, he goes to Algeria, of course that's a different kind of aspect, but it, it sort of builds his his interest in Africa more broadly, you know, there he's, he's looking, for North African ceramics and textiles, but I yeah I mean that, there's a that, there's a lot of in, in terms of Matisse's early, early collecting of of sub-Saharan African sculpture. There's no there's a lot of questions. You know, we don't have a clear chronology for a lot of those those works. Um, there are sort of various references of of, of visitors to Matisse's studio. But that's something I tra- this sort of complexity that I tried to you know flesh out in in, in my essay. It was clear that Iseli did have a fairly small but also significant you know collection of of, of African uh, sub-Saharan African sculpture in, in his studio.
0: There are four African sculptures in the show. They date to the late nineteenth or very early twentieth century. And in the catalog, you argue that "Bathers with a Turtle" quote reflects Matisse's appropriation of African art. To an extent that is arguably exceptional in his painting output, what in the painting are African sculptures, including possibly those that he owned, informing?
1: Well, I mean, most obviously the central figure, you know, the the, the standing figure with you know that the hands up to to the face in that pose of what Alfred Barr called mingled curiosity and anxiety. <laughs> um, I mean, that, that is the most obvious connection, I think. I mean, that you know the there's different connections to African sculpture. I think in 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 our painting, you know, more broadly, you can talk about the the kind of formal language, you know, this sort of angularity of form, the anti anti academic sort of stylized quality, you know, that aspect. I think, you know, connects to to African sculpture. But beyond that, you know, there are there are connections in terms of specific gesture. So, so yes, I mean, as as I say, that the, the central figure with the very, you know, from, I, I think I can't think of another painting by, by Matisse where you have that that similar kind of gesture of, of, of arms, hands up to the up to the chin. That I think, I mean, it connects to the um, to the Congo Valley figure that I mentioned earlier. You know, the first African sculpture that he bought, which has a similar sort of pose. But it also connects to the Baga figure pair that we we have in the exhibition, where you have a, a, again that very similar similar pose. And then I was also Interested in the, in the figure on the right, and you know, I, I've connected it to a, a, another uh, a seated a female figure that that I think. And I had actually an interesting back and forth with Helen Ivanov about this. She's a French scholar who's worked quite extensively on, on Matisse's collecting of African art, and and she agreed with me that you know Matisse probably owned that. I'm an artist sculpture, a seated figure sculpture from Mali, um, but by the time that he was painting Bathers with a Turtle. So I argue in the catalogue, that the, the which I think is the first time actually, that the right-hand figure in our painting could, could connect to that, uh, that particular sculpture.
0: The face of the standing central figure in Bathers with a Turtle is, I don't even know what colour to call it. It's kind of a unique, ashy, ashen, <laughs> non-European, skin-tony, Schmeer where do you think that color comes from does that have anything to do with african sculpture
1: i mean i, I don't know. i'm mean, sort of it, you know as i as i suggest in the catalog it, I, to me it's a sort of dark ashen color i think it was quite intentional it's it's the only you know in in general in in that in our painting where matisse is is painting flesh tones he uses matter lake pink and in that area he doesn't you know there's maybe one or two touches of pink and you know, i've spoken at length with our conservator Mel Gardner about this but, but it, it was quite intentional the lack of Manor Lake Pink in that, in, in that central face so you have a mix of kind of yellow ochre and, uh, and, and lead white so I don't know I mean I think I, I do what I do think though is that Matisse was interested in you know really really sort of complicated questions of gender and race at this time and, he, and, and actually our, our painting becomes a, a sort of space for that exploration so you know kind of quite in terms of gender, sort of quite transgressive, at least in terms of 1900s Paris. And and then, yeah, you know, thinking about how to represent black bodies. I mean, I, I know that most of that central figure is not black, but, but the, the the face, I think, is a kind of nod to that interest in representing blackness. And, and you know, you know, you have to look at some of the other works that Matisse is producing around this time, like, for example, the two women's sculpture, which... He, he called De N'igresse to see that he was exploring those issues of how to represent black bodies.
0: Your writing in the catalog about that got me thinking of how, you know, the, the earlier, much earlier, 1907, Blue Nude Memory of Biscra in Baltimore also has traditional European skin tones for much, but not all, of the body and a very different colored face. In this case, it is a whitish, bluish that may refer to photographic printing processes in North Af- used in North Africa at the time. As you mentioned a moment ago, the Matisse picture most related to St. Louis's picture is one in Minneapolis. What is the relationship between the pictures? Did one come before the others or the other? And to what extent do we see Matisse working through an idea or composition between the two pictures?
1: So yeah, the, 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 the painting in Minneapolis is, is the first work. Uh, and Matisse did, did talk about that as a, as a compositional study for for the St. Louis painting. And Matisse worked on the Minneapolis work in Collioua, and Collioua, that, know, that fishing port to the, to the southwest of France, you know, close to the Spanish border, is an important part of this whole story. So you know, he's working on, on the Minneapolis picture in the summer of 1907 in Collioua, you know, he's thinking about the particular location. It it is more wedded to a place. You can see, you know, fishing boats in the background of that work. You can see a suggestion of a mountain range. You can see, you know, figures holding towels as a kind of rocky ascent on the right, where one of the figures is, is sitting. So it is kind of more grounded in in a particular location. The color palette is very different for that work, as you know. As you know Tyler, I mean, it's, it's, I think he's looking to Gauguin. You know, that's you know, Gauguin's an important figure in that. In, in that particular work, and, and thinking about, you know, the range of, you know, really the range of complementary is just thinking about, you know, if you look at that work, you can see the, you know, the red against, against the green, the, you know, the blue against the orange, yellow against the violet, I mean, you see it across, it, it's really a studying colour in many ways. So that's, you know, that that is a, a really a key uh, work for ours, and he, uh, for our work, and then he brings that uh, work back to Paris, and uses it as a kind of you know, study for, for our painting, but transforms our work, you know, the strips uh, it down.
0: The, I mean, the Fauvism, color, of course, that's present in the Minneapolis painting is completely purged from yours.
1: Exactly. So, I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the best way to put it. I mean, he does kind of, you know the, the the sort of coloristic palette is is stripped down i mean that that's another you know we've done a lot of new conservation work on our painting in this exhibition, whether in terms of a sort a of new infrared reflectogram, which is a lot more detailed than anything we had in the past, but also the new paint cross sections have you know they've been really interesting for me to see and just highlighting that the the palette the color palette in our in our work is very limited I mean, he didn't use many colours you know nine at the most. So it's a more reduced uh, color palette actually than the, uh, than the painting in Minneapolis. And then you know, of course, beyond that, there is a sort of shift from a specific place to placelessness, and you know, a specific time to a timeless you know space. I mean, that's we we mentioned that that before. So you have the painting out of the the fishing boats in in the background of our work. You have the the painting out of the, you know, the mountains of the cloud uh, in, in the background, the, and then obviously in the foreground, there's no longer any, there's no longer any, you know, the figures aren't holding towels. There's no, there's no rock for the sit, figure to sit on on the right now. I mean, I'm going to call the figures in our pictures women because Matisse did, but that's also been a kind of, you know, question. But but now that figure on the right is kind of floating in, in space in, in, in many ways.
0: Speaking of the figures, you either suggest or argue that the three figures in the painting are closely related to three women who lived prominently in Matisse's life and work and influence in these years. Who do you think they might be?
1: I mean that, you know, again this is kind of speculative, but um the, the figure on the left with the with the blonde hair is possibly a, a reference at least to Greta Moll. And actually, Greta while and her husband Oscar had, had, had ended up buying the the study in Minneapolis. Um, both of those artists were part of Matisse's academy, you know, which which he opened up at the beginning of 1908. So they were very much part of Matisse's circle. Matisse talked about how much he admired the color of, of Greta's hair. Sort of, he talked about it as her blonde hair as being the color of honey wheat. So I think that the 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 sort of slight complication about the connection to Greta is that we don't know that he posed nude for her. So There could be a reference to her hair, I think, in that figure on the left. There's another figure with whom Matisse worked closely and arguably had an affair, although that's a sort of complicated area. Olga Mearsson, who is another member of his academy. Um, We don't know for sure that he was in touch with her before March 1908. But it's possible. But she did pose nude to him, uh, so it's possible that Olga could be referenced uh, also in, in in the figure on on the left. I, I think. And really and quickly, I, Olga know,
0: Merson is also present in a portrait that Matisse paints that's in Houston now.
1: Exactly. And we, uh, you know, at one point I actually thought about this that that portrait for this exhibition. You know, that one's kind of interesting as well. The color palette of that is quite similar actually to our painting, even though it is a portrait. It's not a marine painting the other person i thought about is amelie you know particularly the the the, the figure on the right and you know, amelie is you know such an important figure for matisse in in terms of you know just the fact obviously you know, amelie was his wife and at times it was difficult for matisse to get models and you know amelie does serve as, uh, as his model in, in a lot of works you know not just in the you know the famous Four or i just sort of, when i was a, in new york recently i saw a number of you know, paintings where Amelie is the model, but, but sort of going beyond that, right up to the you know, the conversation painting in, in Hermitage where you can see Amelie. So I think that figure on the right, even the profile, has similarities to, to Amelie. But I think I mean in, you know, that that in general your point is probably well taken that there hasn't you know I feel like there is a lot of interest in in artist models in, in general in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century literature and sort of giving agency to the, those models but Maybe that hasn't affected Matisse's literature as as much as it has in, you know, some some of his contemporaries.
0: The figure in this painting that you identify as possibly Amelie bears a striking resemblance to a figure we are confident is Amelie, the seated figure in Matisse's late spring, early summer of 1907, La Coiffeur, which is now in Stuttgart. And as I looked at that Stuttgart painting over the last few days, I came to think that maybe the standing figure is Amelie too. I don't know Mm. what, what kind of the position of the field is on that. That's another painting where the standing figure in La Coiffeur also has a slightly ashen painted face. The seated figure absolutely has Amelie's hairstyle of this period. And kind of the standing one does too. Do you think there's a relationship between those paintings? Could Matisse be migrating some figural ideas between them?
1: I mean, I think it's quite possible. You know, I think you mentioned this at the beginning, but we've you know pushed the dating of our work earlier into the fall of of, of 1907. I mean, Matisse did sign uh, our painting 1908, but you know, looking carefully at the literature, some of the correspondence particularly between matisse and, and felix Fénion, you can push out our work earlier and it makes sense actually um Done. this is something i this is i also worked on this with with the ashi matisse you know and terese has been helpful here and you know she has a great sort of grasp of the of the range of matisse's correspondence so so we we, we she and i actually agreed on on pushing it you know pushing it earlier to 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 the fall of 1907 but uh, but certainly doing that does, you know, heighten the proximity with, with the coiffure painting, which is a, you know, ostensibly obviously is a very different kind of subject. You know, it's an interior coiffure view, which looks back to you know Dugar as much as anybody in, in some ways. Oh, yeah. But that said, I mean, I, I can see what you mean, because there are, you know, in, in terms of the way that the bodies are configured, there are similarities in the, you know, the crossing of the legs. The Position know, of and the
0: hands in the standing figure.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you know, and it's a large painting. You know, it was an ambitious work for Matisse. So, so I I think you know that I think that's an interesting angle actually to to explore that that sort of dynamic a little bit a little bit more.
0: I'm sure once you realize that Matisse was working on this painting in the fall of 1907, what he was doing in the summer of 1907 became all the more relevant. In the summer of 1907, Henri and Amelie traveled to Florence. Where they visit Leo Stein, intending to visit him as a friend, end up visiting him as the subjects of Leo's art history lectures across the city, which they weathered. I think was uh, Matisse's biographer's phrase. <laughs> One of the places they went to, to with, with with Leo was to study Giotto. How does how might Matisse's seeing Giotto in Florence have impacted? Your painting, and perhaps especially differentiated it from what Matisse was doing in the Minneapolis painting.
1: I mean, I think I probably, I mean, the, the thing that I, I talked about more in the in my essay was the move towards abstraction and this kind of curious, sort of almost sort of Janus headed approach that Matisse adopts in our painting. I mean, it seems so, you know, so so modern and forward looking to abstract the background and and you know to to remove the boats and remove the mountains, so you get these flat. Bounds of color, but actually, when you look when you look at the Arena Chapel and the background of of of, of some of those you know narrative scenes by Giotto, you actually see that kind of similar flatness. So, so I, yeah. I, that was I think that was that was something, and and and, the, and just the blueness. I mean, the blue, not to be tried, but blue, particularly ultramarine blue, is is a figure which is a color rather which had immense importance for Matisse, and it, it does. It continues, you know, to have that importance throughout his career, and I think. The significance of blue in Giotto, also Islamic art, actually, but Giotto, you know, what was important for him. So I think, you know, that that shift to abstracting the background and creating that sort of flat band of blue in the back of our painting could, you know, could be connected to Giotto. And then the other thing I would say, I mean, it's again, it's like I, it for this, for my essay, I wanted to push on the in terms of the the gestures of. The range of sort of figural sources. I do talk about Cezanne quite a bit. I think Cezanne you know, is really important to our painting. But, you know, thinking in terms of the the types of figural pose, the, the connections between Cezanne and, and, and sub-Saharan African sculpture. But, you know, John Golding did argue some, some time ago that, you know, the crouching figure in, in our painting could be connected. I think it's jo- Joachim's sacrifice, one of the the, the narrative scenes in Giotto. So there are, you know, you, you could argue that there are particular sort of scenes from, from that Giotto cycle that, that could inform the, the, you know, the, the, the poses gestures of of, of of our painting.
0: This is a slightly unfair question because I don't imagine you've been visiting Russia recently. It's impossible given contemporary geopolitics for you to exhibit bathers with a turtle, with a painting that is, in some ways, its offspring, which is the 1908 game of bowls at the Hermitage in Saint Petersburg. So, appreciating that this is slightly unfair, what is the relationship between those two pictures? Is it as simple as a collector wanting something like that one, or is there more to it than that?
1: I mean, I think initially it, it's it's a work that is a you know it's it's a response to Matisse's. You know, relationship with his patron Sergei Shukin. You know, the our, our painting, the the bathers with the turtle, had been bought by a really interesting German uh, patron called Carl Osthaus. You know, founded the the Folkland Museum in in Hagen in in 1902, and actually, you know, collecting together a really interesting global, I would say, you know, range of work in in that in that museum. And you know, Matisse visited Osthaus. And um, they actually built up quite kind of quite a rapport. So that's a sort of a little bit of the patronage background to our work. But then Schukin came to Matisse's studio in, in the in the spring of nineteen oh eight. And he, you know, at that at that point our, our painting hadn't been shipped to Germany yet. It was still in the studio. And Schukin was able to see it and was absolutely blown away by it. And he you know he he you know, he talked about the, you know, the sense of of melancholy, loneliness in the picture. There's a you know, sort of poetic letter where he, he talks about that. But but Matisse already, had already promised the work to to Ostel, so sort of coming out of that conversation, Matisse agreed to produce this this related work, which is kind of is a pendant work, you know, two hours. But instead of three, you know, women by the beach, you have three men um, who are playing a game of bowls. So there's a, obviously a lot of similarities um, to our work. It has a similar you know, abstract background, but differences too. You know, there's not there's not the same level of, of you know, of, of change of pentimenti yeah. uh, in in the game of bowls work as as there is in in ours. You know, Matisse produced it uh, much more quickly. There's also a letter where he talks about our work as being sort of more powerful uh, than the game of bowls. But yes, I mean, I, I think you know, the, certainly that work, which was, as you say, you know, was was eventually sent to, to Shukin. You know, is is actually in in his quarter sort of counterpoint, pendant to you know, to, to our painting. Unfortunately, we couldn't bring them together, um, as you you said.
0: (laughs) Nor nor is there any uh, real likelihood of that for the foreseeable future. Not that Russia was being a tremendously generous lender in the years before present events, but, you know, leaving that aside, great, I'm now going to get spammed or something. For some time, scholars have noticed that in these years, the mid to late 19 aughts, Matisse is very often working through ideas in two dimensions and in three dimensions simultaneously. Are there sculptures he's made that are related to or or informed by the figures in your painting?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think yes, is the answer. And I think that, you know, we know that at, at the same time that Matisse was working on uh, our, our painting in, in Paris, he was also producing, you know, different, a range of different sculptures and exploring the the female body. I think in a in a way which is kind of complementary to what what you see in our in our paintings. So, and those sculptures are are in sort of a range of different scales. But certainly in 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 our exhibition, you'll see I think the you know the sort of crouching figure at the bottom left of our painting. There are a group of of small you know sculpt tiny sculptures that Matisse you know you can fit you can fit in the palm of your hand that. That Matisse that produced, but where he is, you know, he's he's expl- and he's kind of, you know, really sort of stripping down, abstracting the the female form. You know that that there's a whole series of those those sculptures where you know it starts with the whole body and then you know eventually ends up with just uh, the torso. You know, form. He removes uh, the the head and the arms, and I think there's a at one point he talks about the the form as almost being like a sort of egg-like shape. So I do think you know that interest in Specifically, that kind of form of that crouching form, seen from behind, the sort of tensile back. There's a really interesting complementarity between what you see in the painting and what and what you see uh, in in the in the sculpture. So that I mean that that's you know that's that particular figure, but there are others too. You know, obviously, you think about the you know the figure on the on the right is, has has connections with. You know the decorative figure in in our painting, uh, the, the decorative figure sculpture, which is a larger, a larger, more ambitious sculpture. But we we know that Matisse was, you know, producing a clay model for that at, at the very you know, the very same time that he was working on our painting. And you can see some kind of interesting complementarities between the between that seated figure on the right and and, and the sculpture. And also actually, I you know I didn't. It's, it's just it was kind of difficult to almost impossible to get as a as a loan. But I was. I was also interested in the fact that you know early 1908 Matisse is working on those, those those large life-size back sculptures, you know, and and that you know this this is another thing. And his Haynes Irwin, you know, when she goes to Matisse's studio in 19 in April 1908, she said, you know, she sees you know the the, the back one, and then she sees the figure. So I think we don't know exactly when he started back one, but but you know, I think that that's part of this. The, the sort of context for our our painting uh, as well, I would say, and then you know, so the types of gesture, the just the kind of formal language, just sort of roughness, anti-academic, you know, the the way you can see Matisse's you know thumb marks in in the clay, which becomes the bronze. Um, that very sort of visceral engagement with the medium is is something that I think also translates to the painting.
0: One of the things I was really interested in here is your inclusion of Mayol. In a series of late-in-life interviews Matisse conducted with Pierre Cortion, Matisse talked a heck of a lot about Mayol, who by the time Matisse is doing these conversations with Courteon, Mayol was an old fuddy-duddy, and he was an extremely controversial figure because he was, one one form or another, a collaborationist with, with Nazi Germany. And you dive deeply in the catalog into how Mayol was important to Matisse regarding the figures here there's there's one obvious one but you argue kind of beyond that how is Mayol important to matisse both in the sculptures that you show in in the show and also in the sculptures i'm sorry and also in the figures in the painting
1: i mean there's a you know sort of fundamental connection between them when matisse is in collioure you know and I, and I actually think part of the reason that matisse went to Collier was because he knew you know Mayol was was living close by uh, a so um, and we know that they you know they they saw each other, you know, pretty frequently. So I think you know we, certainly in the exhibition we include the the little sculpture crouching woman with crab, and again just thinking about the sort of just thinking about a range of vocabularies that Matisse was was thinking about was aware of you know, that seemed like it was it was an important work. And it's 1904, you know, Matisse could have seen it when he visited Mayol and Collier. Let shortly. me jump in
0: for just a second. That Mayol sculpture is also quite small, so it's the same scale yeah. roughly as the sculptures Matisse is doing at this time, which might be another argument that he might have seen it then.
1: Exactly, exactly. But it wasn't just a sculpture, I mean, I think, you know, we know that you know, Matisse owned sort of a range of drawings by Mayol. You know, I think particularly about the Sanguine, the... You know the, the red chalk drawings, and and we actually have we have one of those in the exhibition from our collection, and and we know that Matisse would actually use those in his in his academy in, in, in Paris as a, you know he, he would ask his students to actually copy those. So, so I think you know Myle was was somebody in terms of thinking about a sort of anti-academic way to model the, the female form. You know Myle was somebody who you know he looked at very closely. We
0: have been talking a lot about Bathers with a Turtle because I'm completely fascinated by it. But this exhibition goes beyond Bathers with a Turtle to look at how Matisse is interested in the Marine throughout his career, including you know pretty much right up until the end. You date Matisse's interest in the Marine to no later than 1894— when Matisse was still an art student, albeit, you know, a fairly old one at 25, at least for the day. And in 1894, Matisse went to the Louvre to copy a Roysdale painting called The Storm, which shows exactly what it sounds like. Yet, so far as I can recall, Matisse never painted, not counting the study after after the, the painting at the Louvre. Matisse was not at all interested in stormy storminess. Right. The The kind of second half, if you will, of your show is about the placidity, the sereneness of the sea. Do you have ideas about how Matisse got interested as a young man from the stormy sea to the serene sea ever after?
1: I mean, in, in general, Matisse isn't that interested in the stormy sea. I mean, I think you're, you're right when you say that. I mean, I, I would, in some ways I'd see that, that Ryan's style copy is a little bit more of an anomaly. I, I don't know how much it speaks to Matisse's interest in, in capturing storminess as, his interest in in the study of you know seventeenth century Dutch art I mean, he's, he's not he's not just copying ricedalhl right there's a right. range of other seventeenth century Dutch artists he, he's working with and you know even when you know perhaps the area the time in Matisse's career when he's closest to, to painting like storminess is is when he goes to Brittany and you know there's those three summers eighteen ninety five to ninety seven and you think you know, he's really going to dialogue with Monet, and I think part of the reason he went there was Monet. You know, about Monet's yes. Belle pictures from from 1886. But but if you compare them, I mean, there there, there are one or two Matisse's where you get it. He's he's, he's almost there. <laughs> it's almost kind of sorry. But in general, it's, it's it feels different to me. It feels different to what you know what Monet was doing when he was in in, in and, and and just. Trying to capture the sort of elemental force of nature, and as i say there are there are there are one or two paintings by Matisse where you get a little bit more of the sense of that, but in general it's a it is a more of a sense of the overall vista, and then as time develops, it becomes more about the you know the creating of this sort of mosaic of color. You know the, the the painting of the sea. You start to see that when he obviously when he goes to Collier, it becomes to me sort of less about the impressionistic capturing of the moment, and it becomes more about the you know the inventive use of color. And colour, which doesn't necessarily have to be non-naturalistic, right? I mean that that that's what we start to see in in 1905 at at, at Collier. Uh, And really the the marine pictures become, I I think, a focus for that experiment.
0: You include a, I don't know, one third marine picture from 1920 in Baltimore called Large Cliff with Fish that I think kind of pictorially makes the point you just made. The sea in Large Cliff with Fish is is quiet and an unusually light blue, whereas the fish on the beach are a total Loud mess. (laughs) The other, the other way that you show across the show of Matisse's interest in maybe like sea bursts, if you will, is looking out windows in Nice. You also, in a number, in in ways I I hadn't thought about, include in the the catalog a photograph of Matisse rowing in the sea, and in the show works Matisse makes of people diving or, or swimming. I had never thought, like for a minute, about any of these things, and yet after seeing the checklist for the show, I am really interested in them. Why did you want to show and include the sea as a site of activity, not just as subject?
1: I mean, I think that you know, what you, you just said was interesting to me, and, and sort of complicate the sort of around Matisse that he's this highly cerebral figure, which he. He is, but he's also, you know, somebody who was very actually surprisingly physical. And you know, when he was in the south of France, particularly at Collioure, you know, we know from his correspondence that he would want to bathe every day. There are, you know, there are little sketches he would send to his friends of you know, him swimming or, or diving. So it, yeah, I, I wanted to sort of bring out the fact that Matisse's um, relationship with the sea was actually a very, a very physical one. It was visceral. It wasn't. You know, highly intellectual in some ways, uh, and certainly the swimming and the diving is part of that. That continues obviously to when he goes to French Polynesia, has that kind of epiphany when he's in French Polynesia, and it's also when he's in Nice. You know, he's. Uh, and you're right. I mean, we have that. It's interesting that photo. We don't actually have a photograph of Matisse rowing at Nice. There, there is a. There's a photograph of him standing up, standing in a group of the, the members of the Nice Nautical Club. But that that photograph is actually. Him at, at Lake Annecy, so it actually has to substitute him being by the sea. Uh-huh. You know. but, but we know that he was he was an avid rower, and you know as as I've said, he you know he 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 won a, a gold medal for his, his you know his, his diligent appearance and meetings of the the club Nautique de Nice, and you know when Terry visited him, he he proudly showed his calloused hands from you know all the you know the rowing that he'd been doing. So so yes, I that. You know, even though that photograph is not of uh, specifically of Nice, it is kind of interesting because it does present a sort of different, you know, different aspects of to, to perhaps the sort of the persona, the sort of the, the more traditional identity that we have that surrounds this artist.
0: A violinist with calloused hands.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Simon Kelly, thanks very much.
1: All right. Thanks, Tyler. I appreciate it.
0: The Nasher Sculpture Center is proud to present Sarah Z, an exhibition that invites viewers into a captivating collection of new, site specific works spanning three gallery spaces. With installations that will integrate painting, sculpture, images, sound, and video with the surrounding architecture, Sarah Z will create intimate systems to reference the rapidly changing world. The exhibition will blur the boundaries between making and showing, process and product, digital and material ultimately to question how objects acquire their meaning. Sarah Z is on view at the Nasher from February 3rd through August 18th. Plan your visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. The Manil Collection in Houston, Texas presents Chrissa and New York through March 10th, 2024. The show features the artist's rarely seen neon sculptures, as well as plaster, marble, and cast metal pieces, and works on canvas and paper. Krissa was a leader within avant garde circles during her years in New York and was one of the first to incorporate neon into her practice. Co organized by the Manil Collection and DIA Art Foundation, Krissa and New York is the first major survey of the artist's work in the United States in more than 50 years. Find details at Manil.org. The Manil Collection is always free. Opening February 15th, the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Maria Magdalena Campos Pons' Behold, a monographic exhibition of a visionary voice in photography, immersive installation, painting, and performance. The exhibition spans nearly four decades of the artist's work, transporting viewers across geographies, mediums, and spiritual practices. It's the first multimedia survey of Campos Pons's work since 2007. Maria Magdalena Campos Pons' Behold is organized by the Brooklyn Museum, and the J. Paul Getty Museum. Welcome back. Next up, Mark Bauer. He's showing a 36-foot-wide charcoal and pastel mural titled Resilience, Drawing the Line, in the latest installment of the Menil Collection's wall drawing series. Bauer's work adapts imagery from art history and is full of cultural references specific to global and Houston events. Also, for this work, Bauer is trying something new. He's repeatedly modifying the work over the course of its year-long display. Resilience will be on view through this summer. Bauer was the 2020 recipient of the Merritt Oppenheim Prize, Switzerland's most prestigious art award. His work is in the collections of museums such as the Pompidou in Paris and the Museum Folkwang in Essen. He was also included in the 2022 Congo Biennial in Kinshasa. Mark Bauer, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello, and thank you for having me. One of the hallmarks of your drawing practice is that you fuse imagery from the past, often art historical imagery, to references to events that we recognize in our local and global presence. When did you begin to recognize that there was power in mixing art historical images with references to the now?
2: I think it started when I realized that all the images can be reactivated, and actually they never finish to tell us something about the present situation. So it was instead of sometimes reinventing a motif, maybe we can go back to a kind of original motif that we already assimilated and just re it.
0: Was that an idea you were exposed to or came to an art school or later on?
2: Not really. I think it's more that I had always an interest in images and that there were some images from the past that were really striking for me. And I was thinking, why suddenly this image that maybe has been done 500 years ago is in a way still relevant, or still tell me something about the current situation today.
0: One of the images you use in the work at the Manil, and actually that you've, you've used in other work before, is Jericho's
2: Raft of
0: the Medusa. When did you first see it?
2: I think I first saw it in probably in high school, because I, well... In, in this high school, I had also a history of art uh, class. So I guess we had at some point a course or class about uh, romantic French romanticism. So I encountered this image in this context and I was, I think, very fascinated by, by it from the very beginning, this kind of very dramatic story, the grandiose lightning. The very yeah striking composition, so all this drama and this kind of very yeah also macabre outcome of the story was was very it, it stayed in my mind. Let's say as a young kid.
0: One of the interesting things about your including a riff on raft of the Medusa in a work in the United States is that often the United States engagement with and memory of European romanticism is turned down in a way. You know, I, American romanticism sometimes forgets that at the core of much European romanticism was danger or horror or disaster. And you play up the disaster, you're big in the Manil piece, which we'll, we'll talk about in a moment the other work that you reference here is, is uh, John Singleton Copley's Watson and the Shark, another work that that mixes romanticism and drama and disaster. What made those two artworks a good fit for work in Houston, a city which has been much impacted by much in recent years, including, of course, obviously climate change?
2: Yeah, that's, that was a bit the the point, I mean, of this, because I was thinking that these two images are, in a way, Complex enough that you can read them in very different contexts and in very different, you can have very different association with them. So it can be a metaphor of a political situation or a metaphor of a ecological crisis or also how people relate to each other. Because both image also with the painting by Singleton with this kind of person that's drawn, there is this shark and they try to save him. There is always a kind of ambivalence and uh, i was thinking these two images are open enough that you can public today can really read them in uh, in very different ways so it's a good entry for this work
0: in the most recent update to the work in houston you've added a person whose knee is about to get or foot is about to get chomped off by the shark which brings the copley story into the present day in kind of specific migrant referencing ways another element of this work that interests me a lot is your engagement with the marine tradition within europe there is a rich tradition of marine painting i mean the mediterranean sea is right there the north sea is right there europeans have done the marine a lot in the u.s with the exception of maybe like about a decade before the civil war when rhyme of the the ancient mariner was a popular poem and when the when, when american painters were searching for metaphors for the uncertainty of the imminent war to come, marine paintings were popular. Marine paintings haven't been done as much here. You have made a whole bunch of marine drawings across your career, engaging all kinds of artists. What about the marine as a site or a theater attracted you? Was it that question of uncertainty? Was it subject
2: matter and and the ability to reference the migrant crisis, crises, or something else entirely? I think that first water is a big motif in my work, also because it can be, I think, seen quite easily also as a metaphor of the unconsciousness. So Mm -hmm. there is this level of water you see and this horizon, and it's a space, and suddenly underneath you have no idea what what can coming out or what can emerge, or there is all this level of uncertainty and I did also this big work about the migration crisis and for this I was very interested also how this I I was interested in this specific genre of this ex-voto so this image that was ordered usually by my people who were just yeah that that just um, overcome a shipwreck for example a crisis yeah yeah and how these images were, in a way, a testimony of this trauma. And they were also a kind of talisman for the catastrophist to come. So it was also this image as a magic kind of object. So yeah, there is a lot in my work of this marine in different contexts and that play different roles.
0: In a lot of your work, including in the Houston work, there is quite often a suggestion of narrative, a hinting at story, but... Kind of the parts of the work allow the viewer to, you know, walk back and forth across a room or a gallery, kind of putting together the story in their own mind rather than your having finished it for him. You you give us lots of characters, but there's not a resolution or a kind of finished story that you're trying to leave the viewer with. You've done that, featured works that are kind of open-ended, kind of maybe like Paul Delvaux or Rene Magritte suggestion of a narrative without ever really tying it together a lot over and over again. Why do you like leaving the stories open-ended for the viewer to maybe complete in his or her head? Are there art historical precedents for that that work for you?
2: I don't really think of precedent, but maybe it will come when I elaborate this uh, this answer. But what I like is when the spectator has a very active role and that while engaging with the work of art. So for me, it's very important that to give little element and that it's the spectator that will kind of link this different element and fill the holes with his or her own personal experience and that this narrative actually I have I give just a kind of very wide structure of a narrative and then each person can really build his own little story or drama with it. So it's a bit like a kind of Archaeological scene where you have a few pieces and you try to connect together all these remains to make something coherent. Yeah, that's that's what I'm excited about actually.
0: And one of the ways you encourage that is by working at scale. Your drawings are often, you know, covering an entire wall in a large gallery or atrium or you know just other otherwise very large space. Why is scale important? Do you is do you is it important to you do you think it helps the viewer find a way into the characters if they have to physically walk around and see more and experience more by being activated that way?
2: Yeah, I think I think that also the fact that you see a large image it will the scale will determine the position of the viewer in the space basically if you have a small image the 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 viewer will have to go close by to maybe read the text or to understand the motif and if it's a large image the viewer will be usually try to have the view of the whole thing so it will keep more distance with the work and i like to play with this different possibilities that the viewer has and also because then the the viewer can by walking in the space create his own edit in the work so basically Mm. it's a bit like each each viewer a bit the filmmaker of this story and then you can really choose which scene you want to start with which which association you do and and so on
0: we will have an image of the work as it currently stands on manpodcast.com of course and I think you can really see in the image how you're doing that across the work. Some of the characters in the work are quite close to us and pushing up against the picture plane. Some are farther away. There is a natural sense that we've got to move around to get to know all of them or, or, to, or, to, or to be a part of or, or empathize with their stories. Kind of the other element of narrative that works in this work at the Manil is that you are not making the wall drawing all at once. You are making number of visits to Houston to kind of advance it bit by bit by bit.
2: Why do you like to work that way? Well, it's the first time that I have this opportunity. Um, it's an idea that I had a long time ago um, because I think it's, it's great to do a work and first to have the possibility to we engage with the same work and change the narrative and then it's not this work that is a final statement but a possibility of of a conversation or a possibility of a place of for negotiation or something more in a way open that just the kind of the work that we see usually in the institution or museum that usually it's just finish and then you have to preserve it and so i think this work is very different with this possibility of yeah we working on it and also the fact of course that it will be destroyed that's uh, always <laughs> an important part i think in this kind of whole drawing process
0: you've been adding some characters as you've as you've added to the work but you've also added color why did you choose to add the color later and what is that doing as it comes in
2: yeah so the color i think the first in my mind, in this construction of the three steps of the work, there is a bit three different phase, and the first one was more like crisis. The second one is more like idea of resistance, and the last one is a possibility of utopia. And I wanted to to have in the final step this very very colorful wall drawing. So I was thinking it's good to start already now with very bright color, and I'm. I was, well, I'm hoping actually that this use of color is also enhance different part of the world drawing that maybe help the viewer to read, to read it. So now we have this part in the middle of the co- composition with a very bright red. And I think it really also give a totally different experience to the viewer that in a ways create a much more immersive space i'm I'm interested at how this color can vibrate and really it's almost like a physical experience when you're in front of it. You
0: mentioned that the middle section of the drawing is a utopia it's joy it's overlapping dance scenes, both kind of like a dance studio but also like you know young people at a party dancing. Why did you want to i don't know tie the work together with a Section of Utopian joy
2: yeah, I was thinking, how can be in which situation we experience something that is in a way usually not connected with the fear of the other or the competition or the stress of acting in one way or in the other, and I was suddenly thinking that in a party it's where the other people they usually. Yeah, express in a way a potential fun or that maybe it will be friends or lovers or important people in your life, but there is this moment of uncertainty that create an exciting potential of possibilities. And in other situations that in a party, usually other people can be i don't know annoying or threatening, or we are in balance of power with them or different type of relationship so um with this scene, I wanted really to to show and yeah what what is the best of a possibility to create bond with other people Finally, there is one more update to the drawing to come. Give us a sneak preview of what to expect. So for the last part, I was thinking to go on in this idea of utopia and that what could be yeah utopia in all the different meaning that this word can have, not only um, visually, because now it's um, art, so a figurative drawing, but also politically. And I was thinking, well, it's a connection with the world that we have to find where we can... Really experience the reality in all these subtleties and richness. And I was thinking that drawing has this possibility also to be very meditative and that drawing as a practice can really, a bit like a yoga or something like this can really connect us with, um, with just a very here and now experience. And I think the last step will be to do this as, as a certain type of uh, abstract meditative drawing close to the mandala that was to this tradition of drawing, let's say.
0: Love it. Mark Bauer, thank you very
2: much. Thank you very much, Tyler.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program.